All right, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 9. If you're new with us, we've been studying the book of Joshua here at Calvary on Sunday morning, looking at it as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. And I do think God has placed in this book a lot of spiritual principles that we can apply as Christians that we might walk in that victory God has promised us. And so in our study now, we come to Joshua chapter 9. And as we come to this chapter, it's a chapter that I think we can gain some important insights into how the enemy wages war against the people of God. I think that understanding the strategies that the enemy is going to use against us, I wouldn't call it maybe half the battle, but it'll put you well on the road to victory. If you understand the way the enemy attacks, well, I think you've got a good head start on having victory because it removes the element of surprise, really. I mean, it doesn't... If you know how the enemy is going to attack you, he's only got a small playbook. But those few plays in that playbook work really well. So he keeps using them. And if we know what he's going to do and how he works, it will remove the element of surprise. And then, of course, with the power of God on our side, there is no reason why we shouldn't experience victory over the enemy in whatever area he throws at us. So I want to first of all read the first four verses of chapter 9. And we'll stop and talk about it a little bit. But it says, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, heard about it. Heard about what? Heard about Israel's conquest of Jericho and Ai. That they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So, these other nations in the land of Canaan that were mentioned right here, they banded together. They figured, look, they're beating individual cities and so on. Let's band together and let's go out on that way. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. What's in there? Here we have laid out for us the two main methods of attack Satan will use against God's people. We see, first of all, direct assault, mentioned in verses 1 and 2, and then deceptive alliances in verse 3. You know, in the Bible, Satan is depicted as both a roaring lion and a subtle serpent. As a lion, he comes against us directly, using people, you know, to attack us as Christians. To openly intimidate, terrorize, persecute. You know, he uses those direct frontal assaults quite often. But as a serpent, he uses cunning and deception against us. He makes opportunities and relationships, which he is behind, to look like they come to us from God. He disguises enemies to look like friends, wolves to look like sheep. He disguises doctrines of demons to look like truth from God. Now, listen. Direct frontal assaults, while not easy to deal with, are not hard to spot. At least you know what's going on, right? When, when you're talking about a direct frontal assault, at least you know what's going on. The enemy's attacking, right? I mean, you know it. They're coming. They're marching, whatever. You go to work. You're, somebody's attacking you at work. You know, you understand that. And you can deal with it because you understand what the devil's trying to do. You pray and you seek God for strength and, and grace to not get drawn into the conflict, but to stay above it with grace, love, and so on. That's 
one way the devil attacks. Direct assault. Not hard to spot, not fun to deal with, but at least we know what's going on. The other method of attack, deceptive alliances are far more subtle and sinister. You know, these are not always easy to spot. In fact, they're often very difficult because, as we're going to see through the story of the Gibeonites, everything from an outward appearance seemed to say one thing when something else was going on. I mean, to look at the Gibeonites and to see from an outward human perspective uh, the situation as Joshua looked at it, he thought these people were communicating something true to him, and in reality, uh, it was a lie. It was a lie. That's what makes this kind of attack so dangerous, the deception. It's the Trojan horse of the Christian life. Now, let's read verses 3 through 13, and then we'll discuss them. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we heard, we have heard of his fame, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon, and Og king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you uh, for the journey, and go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses, and uh, on the day that we departed to come to you. But now, look, it's dry and moldy, and these wineskins which we filled were new. And see, they are torn, and these garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Liar, liars. Gibeon was only about 25 miles from where Israel was encamped at Gilgal. It was only seven miles from Ai. It happened to be the next town on the road to conquest. So after they beat Ai... The next town, of course, was Gibeon. And it was no small town, by the way. It was not a little Hickville kind of a place. We read in chapter 10, verse 2, that Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. It was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty men. The soldiers of Gibeon were very seasoned warriors. They were not, you know, part-time soldiers. They were a seasoned group of fighting men, mighty men as the Bible calls them. Now, as I said, Gibeon was the next city on the list to be conquered. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 to 20, God had commanded Israel that they were to destroy all the cities of Canaan, every one. God said, when you do that, after you're done with that, if you have war with other cities outside the land of Canaan, you can propose peace treaties with them, but not to any city in the land. The Gibeonites had somehow heard about this. We know this because in verse 24, 
after Joshua discovers he's been deceived and he says to them, why have you done this? They said, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Hey, look, the Gibeonites were terrified of God's people. They knew that there was no hope, no hope for a treaty with Israel since God had strictly forbidden his people from entering into any covenants or treaties with the inhabitants of the land. And so they figured, well, look, if we pretend to have come from a great distance outside the land of Canaan, if we can somehow deceive Joshua and Israel into thinking we don't live close by, but we live very far away and have come to make a treaty of peace with them, maybe then if we deceive them or we can fool them and maybe they will enter into this covenant with us. They knew that was their only hope for survival. Now, on the one hand, some might be prone to sympathize with the Gibeonites. I mean, after all, they're only trying to save their lives. And besides that, they might reason, you know, what kind of a God is it that orders the extermination of a whole group of people? But look, before you sympathize too quickly with these people, and in the process charge God with being a cruel and unjust God, let me just point something out to you. The pagan nations that inhabited Canaan were brutal to the extreme. They had not only wiped out many men, but also many innocent women and children and their thirst for more wealth and more power. We know from history they sacrificed their children to their pagan deities, and they engaged in the worst forms of sexual debauchery and depravity. I mean, theirs was a very evil civilization. And yet, God said to Abraham, there was coming a day when he would bring his descendants into the land and give them the land. Not yet, God said, I'm going to wait 400 years because I'm going to give the people of that in that area of the world in Canaan, I'm going to give them time to repent. 400 years God gave these people to repent from their sins. And yet they refused. Hey, they knew who God was. They were not ignorant. They say it right here. We, we have heard what your God did in Egypt. We heard about uh, the escapades in the wilderness, how your God took on the giants. The nations that they conquered in the wilderness were literal giants. They had heard the exploits. They knew about the God of Israel. They couldn't plead ignorance. God gave them plenty of time to repent, and yet they refused. Therefore, God was justified in what he commanded. Just as justified as I would be if, we'll say, a rabid dog entered the backyard of my house where my kids were playing, and I took a gun or a baseball bat or something, and I killed that dog. That dog was infected with rabies. That dog was in misery. I'm putting the dog out of its misery, and in the process, I'm saving my children. Because if that dog was to bite one of my kids... They would be infected. Possibly they might get really sick or even die. You know, when it comes to that point, you know, there are some people that would want to reason with the dog, would want to offer it trees to kind of coax it and maybe try to, I don't know, uh, win it over in some way. At that point, the dog is too far gone. The dog is it's terminal. What you do is you take the dog out to protect your kids. This was a terminal civilization. 
They had committed so much sin. And let's not forget, as Paul the Apostle said, the things that the pagans sacrificed to idols, they are sacrificing to demons. These nations that were heavily into demonic worship were heavily possessed with demons as well. We don't know the extent of the demonic possession that they were infected with. We do know this. They would have died anyways eventually. And God said, look, I am not going to leave them alive in the land to infect my people with their demonic diseases. I've given them ample time to repent. They've refused to repent. Now my judgment's going to fall. I do not want them infecting my people with their demonic practices. We read in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18. Listen. God said, the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. You shall utterly destroy, and he mentions the Hittite, the Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you, listen, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. God did not want them infecting his people with demonic practices. In fact, God said earlier in Exodus 34, verse 12, listen. God said to his people, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. The Lord said, take heed. That's a strong word. Beware. Beware that you don't do this. Because it's going to bring a terminal disease into your nation. You know, one of the things that God abhors is unholy mixtures. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in the Old Testament, God made a rather unusual prohibition in Deuteronomy 22, verses 9 to 11. Let me read it to you. God said, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox or a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You read it and go, Lord, what is that all about? I mean, what, you know, why can't we sow our field with different kinds of seeds? God said, if you do it, the harvest is an abomination. Why can't we wear garments made up of different kinds of, you know, wool and linen and so on? What is that all about? Well, when you read something like that in the Old Testament, that doesn't seem to make sense. Know this. There's probably a spiritual principle behind it that God's really trying to get them thinking about indirectly. Remember the verse in the Old Testament where God said, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain? And Paul said, picked up on that in the New Testament, said, you think God is worried about oxen? He said that for us. God, said, God was saying, look, you don't muzzle the worker who is out there sowing the seed of the gospel. Right? Don't muzzle the person who is preaching the good news. Let them live off of the gospel so that they can go out full time and be a minister of God. And here we see in that passage in the Old Testament, God is laying out a spiritual principle that he restated and clarified in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? Now, we'll have a lot more to say about this particular passage as it relates to what we're talking about this morning, next time we meet. This morning, I'm just laying a little groundwork, and I really need you to get your thinking caps put on because a lot of this is historical, but it, it lays a good foundation for what we're going to talk about next time. 
But I'll give you a little peek at it by looking at 2 Corinthians 6 as a clarification of what God was saying in Deuteronomy 22. Paul said, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? Remember what Deuteronomy is talking about? Unholy mixtures? This is what Paul is saying. This was what it's all about. For what fellowship is righteousness or believers with lawlessness or unbelievers? What communion has light with darkness? Truth with error is what he's saying. What accord or what in common does Christ have with Belial, which is Satan? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. See, God didn't want them, he wanted to keep his people thinking in terms of holiness. The word holy means separate, it means unadulterated, unmixed is the idea. So by getting them to think that way in their daily lives, when they sowed their fields, or when they plowed their fields, or when they wore certain types of garments, he wanted even at that point to start getting them to think in terms of holiness, so you didn't mix things together and therefore adulterate or pollute them. And of course, Paul brings it in the New Testament and says, look, this applies with regard to us as believers. Christians don't marry non-Christians. We don't combine pagan worship services with Christian worship services. We don't try to bring Christ and Satan together somehow in some unity or harmony uh, for whatever reason. This is the principle. God was trying to drive home. And it's important you understand that. Now, look, regardless of how you feel about the Gibeonites, from a human perspective and their use of deception to, to save their lives, what we need to see from a spiritual standpoint is that Satan was behind the Gibeonites' deception, using them as pawns for his own sinister purposes. You see, if Satan figured, if you can't beat him, join him. You can't beat him, join him. He knew that if he could mix some doctrinal leaven in with God's truth, some false worship in with the true worship of God, it would spread to the whole nation until the whole nation was corrupted, idolatrous, and apostate. Now, this was something Satan had tried to do before, while Israel was still in the wilderness. You remember the story, how they were on the move. Now, they have come out of Egypt, and they have begun to conquer various kings in the wilderness. And they were now ready to conquer Moab, uh, a uh, nation uh, on the uh, southeast side of the Dead Sea. Well, the king of Moab was Balak. And Balak knew there was no way his army could defeat Israel. So he figured, well, I've got to try something different. I've got to try something else. So he sent money to a prophet of God whose name was Balaam. And you remember the story of Balaam. Balaam was a greedy prophet. He was a guy in ministry for the bucks. We don't see those anymore today. But, you know, back then... He was just in it for the bucks, all right? He's a greedy guy, even though he really was a prophet of God. So Balaam, excuse me, Balak took money and gave it to Balaam and said, look, come out of here and curse these people. Maybe if you curse them as a prophet of God, maybe we can defeat them. So Balaam comes out. I'm condensing the story. You can read it in numbers. Balaam comes out. 
Balak takes him up to a mountain overlooking the camp of Israel, who is encamped in the valley. Balak builds an altar, offers a sacrifice. Now it says, says to Balaam, okay, go ahead and curse him. The Spirit of God comes upon Balaam and he offers a blessing instead of a curse. Balak says, well, that's not good. So he wants to go to another mountain where he can see the camp of Israel from another direction. Builds an altar, makes a sacrifice, says, all right, go ahead and curse him. Balaam, Spirit of God comes upon him, he offers another blessing. Now Balaam's getting a little upset. Twice more this happened. Until finally Balak was beside himself. He was furious and said, look, four times now I have asked you to curse these people. Four times you've blessed them. And Balaam said, look, these are God's people. There is nothing I can say. There is no curse or incantation that will curse these people. They belong to God. But let me tell you what you can do so that God will curse them himself. Here's what you do. You get some of your prettiest young girls to go down into the camp of Israel and flirt with the men down there, the young Jewish boys. And when they get them all kind of worked up, have them pull out their little idols, the little gods you worship, and say, how would you like to see how we worship our gods? Because the pagans worship their fertility gods and goddesses through sexual practices. And when the children of Israel fall into idolatry, God will curse them himself. That's exactly what happened. This little piece of advice that Balaam gave to Balak, Jesus talked about in one of the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 that he dictated to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It's the letter to Pergamos, the church of Pergamos. And in Revelation 2, verse 14, listen to what Jesus said. He said, but I have a few things against you, speaking to this church. I've got some good things going on, but I've got some problems with what's going on there. Because you have those, uh, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. You see that little piece of advice that Balaam gave to Balak about how if you want to destroy God's people, you gotta you gotta mix into their nation somehow false worship, paganism, idolatry. And once the Jews open their arms to some of this false worship, because it's very seductive, I mean, it's sexual orgies and all that kind of, was very seductive. And once you get these God's people involved in idolatry, he'll curse them himself. That became known as the doctrine of Balaam, introducing into the true worship of God false or pagan worship. You know what the word pergamus means? Mixed marriage. Mixed marriage. Let me show you how this played out in church history. We know the church was born on the day of Pentecost in 32 AD. And initially the gospel, as you well know, as you read the book of Acts, the gospel went forth with such power because the Holy Spirit was moving in a very powerful way to the to Christians. And the gospel was going forth with such power, spreading so rapidly, and so many people started getting saved around the Roman Empire, that guess what? Satan panicked. And he tried to destroy the church and Christianity with a direct frontal assault. He moved in the hearts of ten Roman emperors, which unleashed ten waves of persecution against the church, starting with Nero in 64 AD and culminating with Diocletian in 311 AD. But to Satan's dismay, the more he persecuted the church, the stronger it got and the more it grew. So, he decided to try a different tactic. Instead of a direct frontal assault, 
he decided to bring about a deceptive alliance, an unholy mixture. You see, by the end of the 4th century, the Roman Empire was in decline. And we know from history that after the reign of Diocletian, who reigned from 303 to 311 AD, there was a power struggle between Constantine and Maxentius for who would be the next Roman emperor. Now, Constantine's father had prospered when he prayed to the god of the Christians. So Constantine thought he'd give that a try, and he prayed to the, the Christians' god, asking for victory. The next day, he supposedly saw a vision of a flaming cross in the sky with the words in Latin which, which said, In this sign you will be the victor, this flaming cross in the sky. Well, he went on to defeat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity, even though Constantine continued to, continued to worship the sun god the rest of his life and gave no real evidence that he was born again. But he called himself a Christian. I think he thought he was a Christian. He assumed, listen now, this is important. He assumed headship of the church, taking the title Pontifex Maximus. It was the emperor who was first called the Vicar of Christ, a title inherited by the popes when the Roman Empire finally disintegrated. Constantine's title of Pontifex Maximus was also taken by the popes. Thus, the head of the Roman Catholic Church is called Pontifex Maximus, or the Roman Pontiff to this day. As soon as Constantine was victorious and proclaimed his Christianity, he rescinded all the laws that allowed for the persecution of Christians passed by his predecessor Diocletian and replaced them with the Edict of Milan, also known as the Edict of Tolerance, which forbade the persecution of Christians throughout the empire. Christianity then became the official religion of Rome, the Roman Empire, and Christians were given high-level jobs in the Roman government. Constantine had all this paganism on his hands now that he wanted to somehow Christianize. The best way to do it was to target the pagan festivals first because, boy, that was very important to, to the people back then. They didn't have vacation days. They didn't have uh, anything to look forward to. They worked hard in the fields. The only thing they had to look forward to were their festivals, which were all pagan festivals. So if you want to Christianize the empire... What do you do? Well, Constantine figured you Christianize, first of all, the pagan holidays and the pagan practices. Thus, the pagan festival of Saturnalia, which was a winter solstice festival, it celebrated the birth of Tammuz, the sun god, on December 25th. It was celebrated with mistletoe, yule logs, and decorated evergreen trees. He decided to make that the celebration of Christ's birth. I mean, it's kind of similar, right? You got the birth of the sun god just replaced with the birth of the son of God. Okay, um, you know, seems to work. We'll go with that. So December 25th, we know Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime because the shepherds were still out in the fields watching over their flocks by night. They didn't do that in the winter. So we know he wasn't born on December 25th. But Constantine made, made uh, December 25th a celebration of Christ's birth known as Christmas. He took a spring festival, the festival of the goddess Ashtart, who was a fertility goddess, celebrated in the spring with rabbits and colored eggs. Well, he turned it into the celebration of the resurrection called Easter. You can hear the similarity, Ashtart, Easter. Pagan temples, well, they were turned into churches. Pagan priests became Christian priests. I mean, they were still pagan. You know, now you're a Christian. Okay, fine. Still did what they were doing before, but now they call themselves Christians. In effect... He married the church with the state. Again, Satan figured if I can't beat him, 
I'll join them. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a very godly man who wrote a commentary on Revelation, when he was commenting on the church of Pergamos, he wrote this. Because that re- Pergamos, the church named Pergamos, that also symbolically represented this period of time. When the church was married to the world, that's what Pergamus means, mixed marriage. But Barnhouse said, and I quote, he said, imagine the whispering that went on around Rome. The emperor had become a Christian. Out of the catacombs they came. Instead of being persecuted, they found themselves popular. Can you imagine Christianity being popular? Like a youngster among heavy drinkers, the church's head was turned by the wine of the world. The priests of the pagan temples had been paid from the purse of the empire, but now Caesar was a Christian, and the priests of Mars and Venus hastened to their Christian baptisms. For the first time in the history of the church, salaries were paid to Christian workers. Tradition has it that Constantine's mother was the first to give money for the erection of a church building. Before, kitchens and catacombs, humble dwellings or humbler dungeons had echoed with the quiet hymns of the believers whose songs of praise were frequently changed to the shout of the martyr as the believers were dragged forth to the arena. All that was over now. The rags of persecution gave way to softer garments, and the church began to enjoy the feel of silk upon its flesh. Thus the church was married to the world. And again, that's what Pergamus means, mixed marriage. You know, Jesus had warned of this very thing in a couple of parables he gave in Matthew 13. There were seven kingdom parables. Two of them really speak of what we're talking about, where Jesus really warns his church to be on guard against this very thing, how Satan would try to infiltrate in with false worship, false doctrine, and try to mix it and marry it to the true doctrine and true worship of the church of Jesus Christ in an attempt to destroy it and bring it down. In Matthew 13, verse 33, it says, And Jesus spoke another parable to them. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is really a reference to the kingdom of heaven on earth or the church. And Jesus said, Look, the church is going to be like pure dough that the devil is going to mix in with leaven. Leaven was, of course, a piece of dough that was saved from the prior day's batch of dough. They would mix in a starter piece of leaven into the dough every day, let it rise, and then, of course, it was baked for bread. But before you baked it for bread, you took a little piece of it and wrapped it in cloth and kept it for the next day's batch of dough. Because leaven, of course, yeast, when it's mixed in with the dough, it permeates through the entire loaf, corrupts it through putrefaction, which is how it rises. But the imagery was very powerful. You take something that's, and leaven in the Bible is always a type of evil or false doctrine. Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, but also false doctrine. So leaven was synonymous with evil, sin, that which was false, and so on. And Jesus said, be careful, because the kingdom of heaven and earth, the church, is going to be like pure dough at the beginning, that the devil is going to eventually mix in with some leaven, and the leaven is going to grow until the entire thing is corrupted. He also tried to communicate this in another kingdom parable, the parable of the tares and the wheat, right? Where Jesus said a, a man sowed good seed in his field, but while he slept, an enemy sowed tares. Tares were weeds, darnel. They looked like wheat until the harvest because the darnel never produced fruit, whereas the wheat produced the, the grain, right, eventually. 
But when they're growing together side by side, for a long time, you can't tell the difference between the two, between the true and the false. And so this guy sowed good seed in his field, went and slept. The enemy sowed terrors. The servants eventually saw the, the uh, both coming up. And as it got time close to the harvest, they noticed some of the plants had grain and others did not. They knew that that was a sign that that was darnell or tares. They came to the master and said, how is it that you sowed good seed in your field and you got these weeds going on in there? And the master said, an enemy has done this. Let them grow together until the harvest, till the end. And I'll send my angels out and gather the wheat or the true believers into my barn, into heaven, and the others will be burned with fire. But notice what Jesus said. Let them grow together until the harvest. He is telling us that the church, the closer we got to his return, was going to become more and more corrupted. More and more corrupted. And of course, all of this is leading up to what the Bible calls the world church under the Antichrist reign. The Antichrist will bring together the whole world in a one world government. But you know, nothing unites people more than religion. And if you could somehow get people to believe that all religions are the same, that they all are just different roads leading to the same place. If the Antichrist and his sidekick, the false prophet, who was going to be the leader of this world church, if we can tell people somehow that really we're all just worshiping the same God and we bring them together in a one world government and religion, that's a very powerful thing. And it will be. And so that's what's being done as we speak. We're seeing the groundwork laid. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And so this strategy of the devil is something he has used against God's people in both the Old and the New Testaments. And here we see it in Joshua 9. Uh, he employs the same strategy as the devil uses the Gibeonites to deceive Israel into making an unholy alliance with them. Now, looking at the story from that perspective, the Gibeonites become really ministers of Satan who were sent to deceive, infiltrate, weaken, and ultimately destroy Israel from within. From within. Believe it or not, this was going to be the beginning of the end of the nation in the Old Testament period. I mean, not immediately, of course. It would take several hundred years before the whole thing would come to fruition. But once Satan had sowed the tares of paganism and false worship among the wheat, you might say, of the true worship of God's holy people, his separate people, well, the tares would eventually grow and choke out the nation's fruitfulness for God as the weeds of idolatry with all of the perverse, and I mean perverse sexual practices that accompanied pagan worship, as all those would kind of grow together and begin to permeate through the nation, eventually the nation would become so corrupted with false worship and paganism and idolatry that God himself would judge it and remove the nation from the land, which happened under the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Of course, the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., carried off the northern kingdom into captivity. A hundred years later, Babylon defeated the Assyrians and all the rest of the world and carried the southern kingdom off into captivity to Babylon. And yet I want you to realize this. God, in his mercy, purified his people once again. How? Because after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, when Cyrus, king of Persia, who overthrew the Babylonians... Ordered, uh, gave a decree that any Jew who wanted to leave Babylon to go back to repatriate their homeland, Israel, they were free to do so. Look, after 70 years, and the Jews were in captivity. They were not in prison. They were allowed to build houses and start businesses. And many of them, you know, Jews are great with money. They, they prospered in, ba in uh, Babylon. 
They, in fact, the Babylonians, you know, like the Egyptians, abhorred shepherds. And so they let Israel be shepherds in their land. The Babylonians abhorred anything to do with making, working with money. So they let the Jews be the bankers. <laughs> well, come on. The Jews were good at that. And so many of them prospered, built houses, start businesses. So when God finally worked in the heart of Cyrus to, to let any Jews go back to Israel, guess who were the ones that went back? Only the most committed, the most on fire, the most in love with God, were willing to make the very difficult, arduous 700-mile journey over rough terrain to go back and rebuild a, a nation that was basically in, a, in rubble. Only the most committed believers in the Lord were going to do that. So what you wound up with was the cream of the crop back in Israel. Amazing. The grace of God. And history tells us after these Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity, never again did Israel worship pagan deities. I'm not saying that they always worshiped the true God the way they should have. Today Israel is a secular nation for the most part. uh, Made up primarily of agnostics and atheists. Because there was a God, how could six million Jews die in the Holocaust? He wouldn't have let that happen if he was real. So there's a lot of things. God's going to change that eventually. He's going to show them he's real. And it may happen pretty quickly as he begins the fight against those who come against Israel. But let me just say this as we close. Satan is never so dangerous as when he takes the form of a cunning, subtle serpent to deceive. In verse 7, we read that the Gibeonites, and that's the city they lived in, were Hivites. That's the people group they belonged to. They were Hivites. John Gill, the renowned Hebrew scholar, said that the name Hivite means, guess what? Serpent. Serpent. You know, last Wednesday night in our study in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul had some things to say about New Testament Gibeonites, quote-unquote, which are just simply false teachers that continue to infiltrate the church in Paul's day and today. You don't think they're around? Turn on the TV. Turn on Christian TV. You'll see a whole bunch of them. There's Gibeonites everywhere on Christian TV. All right? I mean, false teachers everywhere that are hawking all kinds of wares and pastors telling you to talk to your wallet and speak money into your wallet and this and that and, you know, where my little sanctified or holy headband and you put it on you'll be able to work miracles and just send your money in though and we'll send you one right out and oh man but paul said in second corinthians 11 starting in verse 13 talking about these people these false teachers he says for such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of christ and no wonder For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul is telling us that these people come in. Now, let me just say this to you. How do they come in? How do false teachers come into churches? You know why? Because Christians open the doors to them. They welcome them in. Even as Paul said, in the last days, people would not want to hear sound doctrine anymore. The word sound doctrine in Greek is healthy teaching. They won't stand for it, Paul said. What they would want is to gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them all the things they want to hear. What do they want to hear? 
how I can be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and successful, etc. What don't they want to hear? Go to the cross, take up your cross, follow Jesus, die to self, and so on. And they're everywhere, these churches. I was just at a pastor's get-together this weekend with Calvary pastors and wives from all over the state of Illinois. One of our Calvary pastors had been asked to come and take over a, uh, a liberal church. They had no pastor. And the, and the people there were getting elderly. And so there were some young couples in the church, very few, who said, we need a pastor. So they heard about this pastor, Bill, and so they uh, asked him to come and be their pastor. And, of course, he comes right into the church and begins to preach the cross, begins to teach the true gospel. And the few families that were there, younger families mostly, who were open to truth, got saved. But after a while, the elders of the church came to him, who were the old guards from year, many years. Came, you know what they said to him? They said, enough with the cross. Enough with the cross. Move on from the cross. In fact, why don't you just move on? Okay, period. And they, they fired him. And who kept, went with him were all the families that got saved who had never heard biblical teaching. You know, you know what the folks at the church, what they, they said, we don't need God. We just, we just come together and we can, we can do this on our own, basically. I don't even know why they call themselves a church. Why don't you call yourselves a, a happy group uh, that meets on Sunday morning or something? I don't know. Call yourself something. Don't call yourself a church. You're not a church. We don't need God. And all they cared about was fundraising. That's all they cared about. Look, we're coming to the end. Jesus is coming soon, and before he comes is going to come the great apostasy. What does that mean? The word apostasy means a falling away. There's always been apostasy in the church of Jesus Christ from the very beginning, practically. But Paul warned us, right before the end, right before Jesus came back, it would explode in the church. You would have the apostasy. You would have a wholesale exodus among those who call themselves Christians away from the truth of God. We're seeing it. Unfortunately, the folks that are buying into these false doctrines, they're leaving the faith, but they're not leaving the church. That's the sad thing. Again, if a person decides that they want to be a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, those are false religious systems. But if they leave the church to be a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, at least we know what we got now. All right? At least there's a clear, a clear line of, of differentiation between us and them, right? And they might attack us, which is a direct frontal assault. But we understand that. We, we can guard against that. We've got truth on our side. But when you stay in the church and call yourself a Christian and embrace false teaching, now you've got a deceptive alliance on your hands, an unholy mixture of truth and error, tares and wheat, of sheep and goats, right? That's much harder to deal with, especially if... People are being worked on by the Holy Spirit and they're now getting, becoming more open to spiritual truth. The devil can lead them to one of these corrupted churches. They might buy into that doctrine and not embrace the truth. It's very important for us to be on guard. To understand how Satan has worked in the past, how he is working in the present, and listen. I say all this because next time we meet, we're going to personalize this. Okay, I had to kind of give you the foundational historical context. But there is very much a personal application. How Satan wants to get into our lives 
and use unholy or a deceptive alliances against us personally to water down our faith, destroy our walk with God, and neutralize any effectiveness we may have had for the Lord. So we'll personalize this next time, all right? Didn't want to just give you a history lesson today, but a lot of Christians are, you know, as one man has said, those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. You know, we need to be on guard. We need discernment today. These are deceptive times. May God give us the grace to be discerning and to know what God's truth is that we might guard against the lies of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to the truth by, Lord, reading your word. And, Father, we just pray that you would give us grace to understand the enemy's attacks, to be on guard against them, Lord, and to understand he uses stealth and subterfuge and subtlety and deception to do his dirty work uh, to a great degree. And so, Lord, give us grace to be on guard, to be discerning, to know truth from error, that we would walk in the light, walk in your truth. Because your word says if we know your truth, the truth will set us free. We just thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.